Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is October the 20th. You don't need me to tell you that. Uh, lunchtime in California. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I did a, an interview. I thought it was a very good interview, not because of me, but because of the person I interviewed, Martha Jones, who's a professor of history at Johns Hopkins University, formerly at the University of Michigan. She wrote a wonderful book about uh, the struggle for black women's voting rights called Vanguard. And when I was reading that book, one of the things that struck me, I'm not an expert on African-American history, is the story of a, a particularly brave and distinguished 19th century African-American woman, Sojourner Truth, and her struggle. She was based in New York and her struggle both against slavery and in favor of women's rights. And one of the things that I had known while reading her book was that there were a lot of slaves in New York. Of course, we generalists grow up with the understanding that all the slavery was in the South and that the North was somehow the good guys in the struggle uh, over slavery between whites and blacks. But that, of course, is not the case. And today uh, marks the, uh, the publication of an important new book by my guest on the show today, uh, the Kidnapping Club by Jonathan Daniel Wells. Uh, Jonathan is a professor at uh, Michigan, also a former colleague of uh, Martha Jones. And he's written this really important book about the history in many ways of black slavery in New York City. Uh, John, welcome to Keen On. Uh, when we think of uh, New York in the 19th century, we don't generally, or most of us don't think of slavery. But your book, I think, is an important reminder that slavery wasn't just a, a Southern phenomenon. Well, thank you for having me. And um, I'm very pleased to have a chance to talk about the book. Uh, you're absolutely right that uh, we don't associate the Northern part of the United States uh, with bondage. Uh, and by the time we get to the turn of the 19th century, so by the 1800 or so, pretty much all the northern states have uh, either done away with slavery completely or they've made provisions like New York did uh, for the eventual end of slavery. Uh, but that didn't mean that African-Americans in places like New York City were free from the possibility of harassment, abuse, kidnapping, uh, violent racism, uh, and of course they were subject to all of those. So uh, that's really why I wanted to write the book. It doesn't really, uh, by any means, take the pressure off the white South for the monstrosity of slavery. You know, we're talking about almost 4 million enslaved people by the time we get to the Civil War in 1860-61. And the numbers of enslaved people who had been in the Northern states was, you know, minuscule by comparison. But what it does, I think, uh, what shining a light on the precarious nature of freedom for black people in places in New York City helps us understand is that in many ways, uh, 
the issues of racism and slavery are just part of the DNA of the country from its very beginning. And uh, of course, we're still living with the consequences of the legacy of slavery and racism today. So John, tell me about this, this appalling story of the Kidnapping Club, this organization that, as you say, terrorized African-Americans in 19th century New York. What was it? Who participated in it? And how did they get away with it for so long? Well, to answer the second part of your question first, the culture in New York City before the Civil War was one that was very friendly to the slave South. Uh, in fact, I write in the book, uh, and I think it's absolutely true, that New York City was the most pro-slavery, pro-South city north of the Mason-Dixon line. Why was that? Well, it was uh, primarily because New York City had very close ties with the cotton growers uh, of the slave South. So New York, uh, Wall Street, but also life insurance companies, banks, uh, they were all sort of embroiled in the slave economy. And a number of historians have said that, so I'm, I'm hardly the first one to make that point. What do you make, uh, you know, some people, John, and, 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 I, and I don't want to pigeonhole you in any way, some people have associated the history of American capitalism and slavery. How intimately do you uh, bound those two things together? The history of Wall Street in, in, the, in, in New York City, the center of capitalism, uh, we have some images here of, of 19th century Wall Street and the history of uh, uh, bondage in the South, black bondage. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they are intertwined uh, pretty significantly, and that's kind of the point of the book. So uh, the reason Wall Street is in the subtitle of the book is to draw attention to the fact that the close ties that the city's businesses, industries, financial markets had to the slave South made them very sympathetic to white Southerners, openly sympathetic, uh, strongly sympathetic. And on the reverse side of that, of course, made them uh, particularly uh, antithetical to the interests of black people in New York. So when black people were being uh, sacrificed because of the fugitive slave law of 1850 and the fugitive slave law of the constitution, uh, they were very much in favor of making those kind of sacrifices. Tell me, explain how white New Yorkers, so to speak, had their cake and eat it. How could they sleep at night supporting such an appalling institution? Well, it, it's difficult to imagine uh, the, 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 the depth of racism, the racial violence that uh, people, white people were willing to inflict on African-Americans uh, North and South it is very hard for the modern sensibility you know, for us to get our head around, uh, at least those of us who uh, believe in social justice and racial equality. And that's one of the reasons why at the end of the book, I do call for uh, some form of reparations. So New Yorkers uh, found it just uh, hard to fathom. And by no New Yorkers, I mean, of course, those who were on Wall Street, those in the court systems, those who were in the police, uh, they found it hard to fathom how we could place, how Americans could place the interests of black people, the safety uh, and freedom of black people over the need to keep the union together because there would have been no constitution. There would have been no union with the slave South were it not for the compromises over slavery. 
So their uh, New Yorkers are particularly willing to abide by those compromises, not only because uh, it keeps the union intact, but of course the union is the framework for their prosperity. So uh, it's all politics. It's uh, tied in with racial antipathy. And it allowed this culture that I'm talking about in New York City before the Civil War really allowed this, this group to fester. And the Kidnapping Club was actually a name that was given to this group by David Ruggles, who is uh, one of the most unsung heroes in American history, particularly in the 19th century. And I think more and more people are learning about him. Uh, the historian Graham Hodges had a biography of him come out a few years ago, which is great. I first learned about David Ruggles and the Kidnapping Club by reading Hodges' biography. Yep, there's the biography there on the, on the right uh, in my version of the screen. And also from some great history written by Leslie Harris, uh, who's a professor at Emory on slavery in New York, uh, and Leslie Alexander, who wrote on uh, black culture and slavery in New York City, too. So uh, I first learned about the Kidnapping Club from those books, and it was just really a passing reference in those books, and I wanted to find out more. And as it turns out, uh, this kidnapping club was a group of police officers, judges, uh, slave hunters. Was it formally known? Was it overt or covert? Well, it depends on who, is, who you were talking to. So most New Yorkers would not have heard of the kidnapping club. Um, but it's really the, the efforts of David Ruggles to call attention to the nefarious activities of this group that um, is really what allowed me as a historian 150 plus yeah. years later to write the book. Tell me a little bit more about this, this Ruggles guy, because if there is a hero in the Kidnapping Club, your new book, it's this remarkable character, Ruggles, who was, who, who is probably as well known as other 19th century African-American uh, civil rights leaders, but certainly uh, is as important and was, and, and was connected with many of them too. He absolutely was. Uh, he knew all of the major figures in New York City abolitionism, uh, the anti-slavery movement. Uh, he knew Frederick Douglass, and right. by some accounts, he helped Frederick Douglass learn about the abolitionist movement. And Ruggles is kind of, you know, for, for um, an analogy, he's, he's the Frederick Douglass of New York City before the Civil War. You know, he's a really interesting guy, and he's an imperfect hero in many ways. Um, all, like, all heroes are imperfect. Uh, that's right. Um, that's what makes them so interesting, right? So he, what, what uh, really drove Ruggles was a passion for justice, for racial justice. And he uh, kept his ear to the ground. He, con he conducted interviews with witnesses. He patrolled the streets of New York City down by Wall Street. He walked uh, along the wharves of the East River and the Battery, always on the lookout for any kind of activities uh, that might endanger black children, black men, and black. How did this connect with the police? You mentioned that there were there were policemen who were part of the kidnapping club. Was was the city? Was the state? Was law on on Ruggles' side? Did he trust the police? No, he did not trust the police, and they were not on his side. Uh, the police force in New York City before the Civil War was kind of a ragtag uh, collection of marshals and, you know, almost like private detectives. And they didn't really even wear uniforms. Uh, so if you were a and black person. They still don't and sometimes in America, I understand. Yeah. So if you were a black person walking down Broadway in 1835 or 1845, you know, you, you were uh, just as liable to be 
arrested by somebody in plain clothes who claimed to be a policeman. And of course, you had no way to know. Uh, the two police officers who are really kind of at the apex of the of the arm of the kidnapping club were, was a guy named Tobias Budino and another guy named D Daniel Nash. And, and with these guys, and, and, and just very briefly on this kidnapping club itself, I know it's the name of your book too, was this essentially a, a, an economic agency or, or was it a kind of the northern version of the KKK? It is uh, probably for you know, lack of a better comparison, akin to a, a northern version of a, an authorized KKK, right? Because these are people who are at the upper echelons of the police force and the legal system. And again, you know, what they're really, uh, what's really driving them, first of all, is a hatred of black people uh, and out and out racism, but also a belief that um, the union in order to be protected and defended, if we were gonna continue to have a government that was uh, a house divided as Lincoln would later say, then we had to, we being in this case, New Yorkers had to abide by the compact of the constitution, which required them to return runaways. The problem for people like Ruggles uh, is that the kidnapping club members, people like Richard Riker and Samuel Betts and Boudinot and Nash, didn't sometimes care whether somebody had been born free or was in fact an escaped, uh, self-emancipated uh, enslaved person. So that's really what turned it into kidnapping, you know, in sort of the, the hardline sort of traditional textbook definition of kidnapping, that in fact, uh, they cared little whether these people were born free or in fact self-emancipated. And finally, that, well, what else was driving them is uh, money. So I identify a number of places. Mostly. I mean, it's it's a sort of a uh, an extension in some ways, a privatized small time extension of Wall Street in a sense. Yes, and uh, people like Boudinot uh, actually make money by collecting reward money uh, from the planters or the slave owners in the South who now have their supposedly uh, absconded enslaved person back. So they posted rewards all across uh, the country, and these are widely available to be viewed on the internet. Um, there's an interesting database that some of my colleagues have put together that uh, documents a lot of these uh, runaway slave ads, they're called. Uh, very yeah. briefly, uh, John, because I want to move, uh, I, I want to fast forward as well and talk about uh, 20th and 21st century racism in America, particularly in, in, in New York. But how long did the Kidnappers Club last and how did it end? And was Ruggles essentially uh, the, the guy who 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 who, uh, who who ended the Kidnappers Club? He certainly played a, a prominent role in ending their uh, horrific activities. He uh, actually suffered tremendously from it, from the battles that he had engaged uh, with the kidnapping club and the police. They jailed him, they harassed him, they came to his house in the middle, middle of the night. So he suffered physically from all this. And he left New York in the 1840s so that he could try to recuperate in Massachusetts. But once he leaves, uh, in some ways, the abolitionist movement in New York City mushrooms and becomes a more organized, more sophisticated uh, entity. And uh, what really brings down the kidnapping club is now, uh, by the time we get to the 1840s and 50s, they have to, police officers arresting accused runaways, have to take them uh, before a judge and have a jury trial.
So that's key, right? I mean, if you don't have a jury trial, you can take somebody before Richard Riker in the middle of the night, which did happen, and whisk them away to bondage in Virginia before anybody even knows what happens in a matter of hours. And that is documented in the book. So having a jury trial put in place really helps to squelch the worst tendencies of, of the kidnapping club. Uh, but the book itself goes into the 1850s and culminates uh, with the execution of uh, Nathaniel Gordon for uh, slave trading and uh, something that President Abraham Lincoln kind of oversaw and wanted to enforce. Uh, and Nathaniel Gordon is hung at the Tombs prison uh, in 1862 for slave trading. And it's kind of uh, New York coming to terms with its with its difficult past. You know, they feel like they have to put this man to death before uh, taking enslaved people across the Atlantic Ocean as kind of a, almost a, a recompense for all of the, the activities that they had allowed to go on uh, for decades. John, you don't need me to tell you that, of course, this didn't end the history of racial injustice in the country. The Kidnappers Club was an appalling example of it, perhaps the worst in certainly in New York City, but the history of well, the, the, the impact of slavery, of racism, of, of racial injustice and racial inequality has, has marked the history of this country perhaps more than anything else. Let's fast forward a little bit to, to, to Watts in 1965. How does the Kidnappers Club connect to events like uh, the civil rights movement in the 60s in, in California, which, of course, is a long way from New York? Yes, Absolutely. Well, one of the reasons we need what's sometimes called the second reconstruction in the, in the 1960s is because of the unfulfilled promises uh, of the Civil War and the original reconstruction in the 1860s and 70s. There were uh, attempts in the wake of emancipation, you know, the 13th Amendment that ended slavery in 1865. There were attempts to uh, grant African-American freedmen the right to vote uh, and some protections of due process in the 14th and 15th Amendments. The problem was uh, that by the time we get to 1877 and the end of Reconstruction, there's no more enforcement mechanisms. So all of those uh, Southern states that had been under martial law are allowed to uh, reestablished essentially racial uh, domination and, and racial terrorism from the night from the 1860s and 70s all the way until the 1960s, a hundred years later. That's not to say, of course, that there weren't important African American activists in those hundred years, and there absolutely uh, were. Uh, but to a significant extent, the nation, even by the 1960s, it, especially in the southern states have not fully come to grips uh, with notions of equality and freedom. So that's why uh, we needed the civil rights movement. And that's why we need to continue the, the civil rights uh, marches and um, Black Lives Matter movement, which I feel right. is- uh, So let's, uh, let, let's end this conversation, John, with Black Lives Matter. Of course, uh, civil rights movement of the 60s wasn't the final statement on this either. 2020 is going to be remembered perhaps even more than than, than COVID-19 by Black Lives Matter and the struggle in America for racial justice. We've had a number of shows about this. Uh, draw the line or connect the Kidnappers Club with what's happened in America, and perhaps particularly in New York, there's a couple of photos there of demonstrations uh, in favor of Black Lives Matter in New York uh, between the Kidnappers Club and the Black Lives Matter movement. 
Well, unfortunately, for those of us who study history, we can see the lines pretty clearly drawn uh, from the 17 and 1800s through the 1900s to the present day. And those lines are uh, the subjugation of black people, the assumptions of white supremacy, uh, the police violence against black people that we saw in the death of George Floyd, uh, but also in Eric Gardner in New York. And uh, we cannot lose sight of the fact that, yes, American history to some extent, uh, maybe to a significant extent, is based on ideas about liberty and freedom, uh, but it's just as much and, and probably in some ways more so about the, the abrogation of that freedom. The fact that you give uh, liberty to some people and that you deny it and take it away from others. And that's what uh, the American history project has been about over the last uh, you know, half century or so. It's not so much necessarily about military history sometimes or World, World War II history, which the popular culture seems to be um, continue to be interested in. But what uh, other historians have been trying to do is to, to get us to realize that the legacy of slavery and racism is very much with us today. It certainly is. And, and your new book, which comes out, which came out today, it's available now, The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street, Slavery and Resistance on the Eve of the Civil War, I think is an essential piece of that history project to remind Americans of their terrible past. Um, John, you're in Detroit at the moment with its own complicated, tragic racial history. Uh, you teach at the University of Michigan. You're probably stuck inside like most of us in these strange COVID-19 days. What else should people be reading in addition to your kidnapping club? Well, there's, uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, Martha Jones's Vanguard, which uh, is one of the important books of the year as far as historians are concerned. Uh, but also I would point folks, if they're interested in the 19th century and they're interested in novels, uh, to the writing of people, um, like um, Jasmine Ward, who's written about uh, the uh, Katrina. She is a Michigan uh, MFA. Um, but also, if they're interested in the 19th century, you know, pick up the Underground Railroad, which is such a great book. Uh, or the Nickel Boys, which is about uh, early 20th century Florida, which is also uh, a great book. There's so many uh, wonderful authors of color out there uh, to read. Those would be ones I, I would recommend. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.